Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Let It Roll, Tales from the Tour Bus where the podcast about how and why popular music happens takes a break to talk about our favorite animated music history show from Mike Judge with hosts Nate Wilcox and Justin Bankston. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, Nate and Justin talk about the sixth and seventh episodes of Tales from the Tour Bus, featuring Waylon Jennings, one of the kings of outlaw country. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to the Lateral Podcast, one of our special Tales from the Tour Bus episodes. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by my partner in crime, Justin Bankston of South by Southwest. Justin, welcome. Hello. Thanks for joining us. And today we're doing a big episode because we've got two episodes of Tales from the Tour Bus to discuss in one episode of Let It Roll. And it's two, I think, probably the capstone of the whole first season, which is the two-parter on Waylon Jennings the greatest outlaw in country music history, as Mike Judge introduces him. And the contrast with the other two-parter in this season, the George Jones, Tamo Wynette, is deep. And I think it's fundamentally one of comedy versus tragedy in insofar as even though probably the George Jones, Tamo Wynette story is more tragic, but it's also more comic because fundamentally George Jones is a clown and Waylon Jennings is a king. And there's just no laughing at Waylon. There's just laughing with Waylon. And there's plenty of laughs, but fundamentally, it's sort of a rise and rise rather than a rise and fall because of Waylon's accomplishment, his massive popularity. And I think ultimately, because he was able to surround himself with people who cared about him, that he cared about and took care of. So they took care of him as opposed to George Jones, 
you know, whose relationships, even with his dearest friends, ended in mayhem and violence. So, thoughts on that? Indeed. I think, you know, you said it very well. Waylon built a great team, and everyone loved each other, and they believed in his talent, and he just knocked it out of the park and continued to sort of ride that wave. And obviously there were some, some bumps in the road, which are going to happen when there's that much money and drugs and, you know, personalities involved, but all in all, like you said, up and up. Indeed. And, you know, it it wasn't all, you know, sunshine and and rainbows. Like you say, there's plenty of drugs and that kind of fame and money is, is going to, cause some corruption and you know this is a guy who was adopted by the hell's angels and you know all the bad shit that comes with with people like that but in this instance at least in the way that story is told by mike judge and his team you know the angels are a, a relatively benign presence but first let's summarize the the plot structures the two episodes i mean basically the first episode and it's interesting you know when you do notes on these things how much you notice that that you are oblivious to when you just watch it. Like I'd never really realized that the first episode had so little music. It's only got three songs. Whereas the second episode has one, two, three, like seven songs in it. And so what do you think, what do you think that was? Why was the first episode relatively light on tunes? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with, there was just a lot of setup to do. And then also they hadn't gotten to the real meat of his catalog in that early part. And so I think they were just sort of like, you know, they were just waiting to just drop the big guns in the second episode. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And that, and the first episode had a lot to work, a lot of work to do. Um, you know, they tell the story of his childhood, basically focusing on he and his brother's fantasies of singing at the Grand Ole Opry and a horrific childhood injury, which is uh, another theme in this series. Uh, the 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 scene of young Wayland dropping on the sand catcher, which is a nasty little piece of farm equipment that's used to break up tough sandy soil. Uh, reminded me of nothing so much as the judge who lost his arm in the combine in the Johnny Paycheck episode. So you're, you're seeing yeah, this. Or Billy Joe Shaver who lost part of his, you know, finger working in a sawmill. It's like the, the implements of work are the enemy of the artist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tony Yami couldn't have said it better. But um, yeah. And, and, you know, then they then they quickly get to the Buddy Holly aspect. But I want to note that they start and they start both episodes by jumping ahead in the timeline. They start the first episode telling a pretty random story about a Canadian border crossing in which they follow Willie Nelson's bus across the border. And everybody knows Willie's the king of stoners. And, and you know, Willie's gone to extreme lengths to try to clean up his bus uh, to pass the border inspection, but the guard dogs, you know, the, the reek of of kind butt is so intense in Willie's bus that the dogs, even after it's been steam cleaned and everything, the dogs just come in and you know, and freak out on the whole bus, and and then Wayland and company, but you know, but they don't have anything because they've cleaned in preparation for this border crossing. Then Wayland and company are about to be strip searched coming up after Willie. And and they pull their sheriff's deputy badges, which six or seven of them were honorary sheriff's deputies, and they managed to cross the border that way. But why do you think they started with that sort of shaggy dog drug story at the beginning? That's a good question. I think, you know, 
it's a great story and it sort of gives you a little bit of foreshadowing of, uh, you know, Waylon and Willie being, you know, associated with each other and the whole outlaw thing happening. So I think it was kind of a fun setup, you know, to just a little, little levity before we get into, as we said before, there's a ton of, of to tell about Waylon's story before we start getting into the fun outlaw stuff. Yeah, yeah, the triumphs are coming later. So I think I think you're right that it's to establish him, him and Willie as outlaws in a literal sense, you know, on the run from the man. And it also, you know, this Canadian border crossing theme. Billy Joe Shaver had a very similar uh, Canadian border story in the previous episode. And so then then they talk about uh, his relationship with Buddy Holly, and that's one probably not a lot of people know about. I know that ten years or so ago, I, I was the first time I saw the incredible picture of buddy holly and waylon at one of those little you know uh take a photo booth snapshot series things and when you see them together it's kind of like the when you see the pictures of paul newman and james dean when they auditioned for the same part i think it was in east of eden um and you see these two young beautiful hollywood demigods together then you realize wow paul newman was the same age as james dean even though he lived another 40 years after james dean died and this is the same thing with buddy holly and well and jennings when you see them together as young rockers i mean both of them with the sunglasses and the greasy hair and just looking great and young and alive and then one of these guys is going to get snuffed you know just weeks after that photo was taken and and so I think it was important to judge to tell that part of the story as well. And and Kinky Friedman um, uh, is brought in as as um, you know one of the narrators and and tells I think has some wise words about the meaning of the Buddy Holly thing that you know that he says Buddy Holly was definitely the match that that lit the kindling on the Waylon Jennings story and showed him you know how big this could get, but also showed him how quickly it could go away. And I think that ghost of buddy holly kind of haunted Waylon jenny's whole career absolutely and it's a great it's just a, an amazing story because being buddy holly's bass player and like almost getting on the airplane that killed him and richie valens and the big bopper like you're sort of a rock legend for life just there if you do nothing else you go home and drive a truck after that you are a rock legend for life and then for Waylon to go on and do everything that he did uh, whereas, like you said, most people don't even know the story. Like I had always heard that Waylon was Buddy's bass player that he almost got on the plane, and I just thought it was so unbelievable. I honestly thought it was an urban legend, you know? Yeah, that's an entirely reasonable premise you know, to go on. And then when you hear the details of the way Waylon told the story, and his, his son uh, Terry Jennings tells the story uh, for the show, you know, Buddy and, and Waylon were teasing each other before, after the show they had done that night and before Buddy got on the plane and Waylon had given his seat to the big bopper and, you know, they're just cutting each other and, and Buddy's hassling him and, you know, I hear your chicken to get on the plane. And, and you know, Waylon's like, it ain't like that at all. And, and then Buddy's like, well, I hope your old bus breaks down. And then Waylon says the, fa- you know, tragic words, I hope your plane crashes. And and that's something that literally haunted Waylon for years. If if you read the autobiography he wrote with Lenny Kay, which I cannot recommend highly enough, um, there there really was a, a survivor's guilt and PTSD on, on Waylon's part after that. And it took him several years to really get his feet from under him. And that's when he goes to well, Phoenix. Yeah. Go ahead. 
I mean, anybody can understand how that'll fuck a person up. Yeah, for sure. And, 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 and it did, but he, he you know, Waylon recovered. He, he gets out to Phoenix, puts together a hot band. That's where his drummer, Richie Albright joins the story. And, and, uh, one thing they don't go into that is, Waylon was drawing enormous crowds in Phoenix. I mean, you know, several hundred people a night, almost a thousand people a night, six, seven days a week and making good money. He had, you know, a real career outside of Nashville going on. But, you know, in this episode, the way they tell it, Bobby Bear, the the Nashville star comes and uh, sees Waylon and, and, you know, basically gets on the phone with Chet Atkins, the king of country music, the god of Nashville, and tells him to sign Waylon and Waylon does. But they, they, put some warning in there with Kinky Friedman mentioning how Willie Nelson had met Whiteland around the same time and told him, don't go to Nashville. They'll break your heart. Yeah. And, you know, and, and then you know, from there, Whelan, yeah, go could have stayed in, in Phoenix and, you know, made good money and, you know, been a roadhouse band leader, you know, his whole life. And we'd never heard of him and he would have been, still would have been a great musician. But if he hadn't, left town to go try something else we wouldn't be talking about him entirely possible though he could have ended up in bakersfield and gotten into that buck owens merle haggard orbit but it would have been a totally different tale and there wouldn't have been i think for waylon and willie story to take place they have to have the resistance of nashville they have to suffer they have to be misused in nashville and rebel against it and overcome and triumph and that's there needs you know, to be a law for them to be out of. Exactly, exactly. And and you know then uh, they they tell it you know when they get to Nashville and, and and discovers pills and Roger Miller and, and joins the songwriters club, of, you know Harlan Howard and Hank Williams Jr., Chris Christopherson, Shel Silverstein that you know a lot of people Gen Xers like us know as a children's story author and forget that you know this is the guy who wrote cover of Rolling Stone and a number of. A big hit song so it was a big part of the scene there in nashville at the time you know and then and then uh the the episode ends um with willie going to austin and, and inviting waylon out there and, and and ends with the triumphant um i don't think hank done it this way which just i'm gonna tease it right now but that is absolutely my favorite musical moment of the two episodes on waylon yeah, it's a great part. Just that, you know, I take, you know, probably undeserved pride, obviously undeserved pride in the fact that that all happened in Austin and, you know, uh, that whole Cosmic Cowboy, you know, hippie with cowboy hat thing that kind of took over the world in a way was really like, we were ground central for that. Absolutely. I mean, and that's pretty much what put Austin on the map culturally. The 13th floor elevators kind of lit the fuse in the 60s, but, you know, uh, Waylon and Willie and Doug Som, uh, who doesn't get a mention in this in this episode, but but shouldn't be overlooked as, as the guy who kick-started the cosmic cowboy scene in Austin. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, that's the whole deal with, with Waylon and, and Waylon and Willie and the Texas versus Tennessee rivalry in country music really starts right here with Waylon and Willie. And then um, it's throwing me off a little bit to do the two episodes in one, but but um, should we t- let's talk about the different people I interviewed, I guess, in the first episode and, and go through, and then we'll do the do it in the order. And so basically, they follow the same format. They've got um, Gordon Crank Payne and Jerry Jigger Bridges as guitarist and bass player. 
got Tom Bork, his road manager, who has some great lines about being terrified by Waylon and his cowboy crew. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his son, Terry Jennings, uh, Kinky Friedman, uh, Richie Albright, uh, who's the drummer that joins him in Phoenix, uh, Barbie, Bobby Bear, another singer-songwriter and friend from Nashville, and then Shooter Jennings, his youngest son. And it's interesting to me, one thing I really noticed is how much – turnover there is between the, t- the guests in the first episode and the second one. There's some repetition, but they do a pretty good job of bringing in a new crew of people for the next episode. Indeed. And one thing I noticed about the interviewees in this episode is, you know, they are all characters more or less, but they're all really seem like intelligent people who have their heads on straight. And there's none of the sort of like, you know, some of the people, some of the most entertaining people in some of the previous edit episodes, were obviously marginal human beings. Uh, and that's really not the case with any of these folks. These folks all seem like really like solid humans. Yeah, even though they've had these sort of picaresque experiences, they, they're they pretty grounded and sane people. And it's very different than sort of the cabal of people surrounding Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, or even the crew around Billy Joe Shaver, which you wouldn't say, oh, these are bad guys, but there's an element of small timer in the Billy Joe Shaver band that you don't get that perception with the Wayland Jennings. I mean, it was a big deal to be in the Wayland Jennings band. And he also kept the same crew for decades. Yeah. Total pros. Yeah. And, and, and a ton of loyalty uh, there. And so, you know, the, the three songs uh, in the episode are I'm a rambling man, which is, you know, classic outlaw country from the set mid seventies, the golden age of Wayland that they used to introduce him, which I think is again, a great example of Mike judge and his good taste and music and using the song samples to really set the scene and establish the character. And once you hear and see Waylon doing rambling man, especially after judge's intro, you know, like this guy's the king of the outlaws. There's no question period. Boom. And then he plays rambling man and you see it for yourself, you know, and then midway through the episode, they do, Uh, stop the world and let me off you know and which is to give you just a taste of the nashville period and what chet atkins was doing to the music and it's really you know i mean they could have played macarthur park or something that that was a screamingly obvious example of whoa you know this guy's talent is being misused by nashville but uh stop the world is a pretty anodyne example of what they were doing and then and then they closed with i don't take hank done it this way uh to bring the story to the next part on a pretty triumphant note. I mean, they end with the breakthrough in Austin, even though they kind of backtrack a little bit in the second episode. Any other thoughts on the tunes in this episode? Yeah. You know, there's one, this is like a total non sequitur, but one thing that, that you get it right away with, I'm not with the cut of I'm a rambling man is that sort of phaser guitar sound that they used on so many of those records that I really wish they hadn't done that. Like, it's like the one thing on those records that sort of like dates them in a way that, that I think isn't ideal. Uh, but it also sort of is what it is, right? Like that's, that's how those records sounded when they made them. Yeah. I mean, that's the signature sound. I don't think you could do a vintage period Wayland without that, that particular sound. And it is a little bit dated, but, um, I don't know. I think it's one of those things that just marks it as of its time and place. And it was a heck of a time, you know, for music. So, um, 
you know, it is what it is. But uh, and that is omnipresent. If you can't handle the phased guitar sound, you're going to have a hard time. <laughs> well, absolutely. Like I'm, I totally. It doesn't ruin it for me, but I notice it, you know, and I wish I could stop noticing it. Yeah, it's kind of like you know, '80s snare drum or something, you know, which has been having a comeback for the past 15 years. So, you know, those, those <laughs> things coming up, I haven't heard a lot of phase telecasters making a comeback, but you never know. It could be little, little Nas X on his next duet might, might bring it back. But um, anyway, so that's, that's kind of the tunes on the, the first episode. And uh, do you want to do the, the favorite parts episode by episode or in total? Let's do it in total. Okay. All right. So, so we'll, we'll just dive right back into the second episode. So then, you know, after they, they tell the story of Wayland's years in the wilderness and I got to give a shout out to Captain Midnight and Kinky Friedman's description of him before we move on to the second episode, Captain Midnight's the guy who's a radio DJ who gets fired for locking the doors of the studio and play them wait nothing but Wayland Jennings for several hours until they can knock the doors down on the radio studio radio studio and drag him out. Um and Kinky Friedman's description of Captain Midnight as uh the angel on the shoulder, uh although these days we'd call him a homeless man. And and you know it it the irony is so thick with the way Kinky uh is describing Captain Midnight that it's hard to tell if he means what he means by it. I mean, does he view Captain Midnight as actually a good person and a good advisor to Waylon, or is he just a sleazy drug connection? Yeah, I was also completely entertained and baffled by Kinky's uh, little, you know, uh, reference there to Captain Midnight. I was like, wait, is like he is so far beyond dry that you can't can't get a read on like he's just layers deep on it. <laughs> yeah. You can't tell if he's, if, if there's any judgment there, he's not sharing with you what it is. Like, I'll give you the exact quote. Captain Midnight, a spiritual leader of the time, an angel on Wayland's shoulder for Wayland to have the wisdom to surround himself with someone good like Midnight, who today we would call a homeless person. That was real good. It definitely made it easier for him to get the drugs. <laughs> I mean, you know, and then they go and maybe gives it away a little bit at the end. Yeah. Yeah. That might be a little bit of a touch, but, uh, you know, so midnight's in the first episode is kind of the guy that, that hooks him up with the prescriptions they need in Nashville. But in the second episode, we start with another picaresque tale and it's very similar to me of the way they start with the Canadian border crossing in the, in the second one, they tell a story about a concert at a barn and how they're not getting paid and and they have introduced sort of like Chekhov and his gun. They've introduced that Whalen keeps dynamite in the back of this bus that he's painted black. And uh and then, you know, they don't get the money and Whalen says, Well, fuck it, let's leave. And then as they're driving away, boom, the barn blows up. <laughs> and, you know, Billy Joe Chambers is like, Whalen, did you see that? And Whalen's like, I didn't see nothing, Haas. You know, very clear that Whalen planted the dynamite. So once again, what do you think the purpose of this Shaggy Dog story to start the second episode is? Well, I think, again, it's just, it's a great story. Uh, my feelings about how true it is are, well, it's clearly, to me, been embroidered significantly by Billy Joe, who is a champion Texas tall tale teller. Yes, indeed. But, uh, 
you know, it's, it, but, uh, dynamite gets brought up multiple times in this thing though. It's often brought up by Billy Joe. So I don't know. I have to go back and like really <laughs> run the transcripts. Yeah. It's not something that popped up in the Lenny K books. So I don't know if it actually happened or not, but, but it, it definitely set, sets a tone and it establishes Waylon as a character of somebody you don't fuck with and who's cool and slick and, and not very much, not a clown like George Jones. I mean, Waylon, no matter how fucked up he is, Waylon can take care of business is basically the message there. Um, and, and then the show segues as part of the Nashville to Austin segue that, that they started at the end of the first episode. Then uh, Richie Albright, the drummer comes in and, and explains, you know, they've been talking about how Waylon had gotten ill, his liver had given out because of all the speed he'd been doing and he couldn't do that anymore. And I guess apparently cocaine is less difficult on the liver because Waylon was able to switch from uh, pills to Coke for the 1970s health plan. Yeah. So, you know, and this lasts him another 11 years. So, you know, uh, and, and Richie's definitely have mixed feelings about that. You know, he does tell it as if it solved the, the immediate medical problem, but he refers to it as, and then the demon took over, you know, um, then they tell how Billy shows Shaver comes in and, and this is very much like the Johnny paycheck episode was a prequel to the George Jones two-parter the Billy Joe Shaver episode is a prequel to the Waylon one, and Billy Joe has an even more important role in the Waylon Jennings story than Johnny Paycheck had in the George Jones story. Whereas you know, Paycheck was a great sideman and sometimes bass player for George Jones and a, and a great comedic foil, Billy Joe is a great songwriter who writes all but one song on what they call the first outlaw country album, uh, Honky Tonk Heroes. It's probably actually the second one, um, but. It's such a great album. I don't have any problem with them building the myth of Honky Tonk Heroes whatsoever. Absolutely. And yeah, I love Billy Joe being in the mix on this because, you know, there's just that providence that brought them together and made this whole thing possible. It's just so, it's so great to see that story. And you get to see it twice because you see, see the Billy Joe episode and then you see it again here. And it's just, it's good stuff. Yeah, and the, and they tell different aspects of the story. In the in the Billy Joe version, they talk about the meeting and how Waylon was impressed with the songs and how it was, you know, an acid fried, you know, LSD experience at one of Willie's picnics, where Waylon first hears the music and says, "I want to do a whole album of them songs." But in this one, it shows that Billy Joe had to work and push it to make it happen. You know, Billy Joe goes back to Nashville, and it's another one of those setups where Billy Joe talks about what an honest man of his word Waylon is. He's just a cowboy like me. And then I get to Nashville and the fucker won't record my songs. <laughs> you know, he doesn't come out and say like, you know, dude's a typical music biz scumbag who makes a bunch of empty promises. And I had to go up there and physically threaten him to do my songs. Uh, but they tell it, you know, they show it. And, and Billy Joe literally did have to challenge him to a fight. And Waylon agrees, you know, this guy's driving me crazy, but fuck it, I'll sit down and let him play songs. And, and you know, he tells him, I'm going to sit here and listen to your songs. You can play one. If I like it, you can play another. If I like that one, you can play a third. But as soon as I don't like one, you're, you're out of here. And Billy Joe's six songs in and uh, hits him with Honky Tonk Heroes. And, and Wellen says, fuck it. I got to do an album, you know. And, and you know, the rest is history. And, and in the narrative structure of this episode, 
that's sort of the arc, the triumph. After that album is such a huge hit, you know, Waylon is now the king of Hillbilly Central, his own studio in Nashville. Tom Paul Glazer and he form, you know, the Outlaws. Waylon's flying around in a private jet, waving around a, a million dollar check that's made out to him. I mean, that's high living. That's good stuff, man. I would love one time to have that check in my pocket. Yes. Give it out to me, not to Waylon. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. I mean, I just wanted that, to say real quick, yeah. like the going back to Billy Joe and him uh, telling Waylon that he was going to whoop his ass if he wouldn't listen to these songs. Like this is Waylon Jennings, who already at this time is like the man. He's got like, you know, Hell's Angel security, and he's, you know, six feet of badass outlaw country guy, his own self. And Billy Joe's just like, man, I'll take the ass whooping. Whatever, whatever, I'm like, this is not going to happen, you know, and just puts it out there. And I love that. Yeah, I do too. It's it's definitely one of those things where you have to understand what a bad dude Waylon Jennings is or was to understand, uh, what a bad dude Billy Joe Shaver was, you know, and, and it's kind of a stupid way to solve problems, but you know, it's human male animal and that's how we do sometimes. And, and, you know, the high living of course sets up the bust and, um, you know, this is a situation where Wayland's management was very nervous about the amount of cocaine Wayland's buying on the road. And they thought that it would be the safest thing to do would be buy it in New York and FedEx it, to nashville and it goes wrong shipments late the dea raids the studio and richie albright saves the day i mean he you know tells the story how he he pushed the you know Waylon's down in the studio recording and richie's in the control room and he, the cops come in and he pushes down the talkback buttons so Waylon can hear what's going on and knows there's a raid and then you know richie's like you don't have a warrant you know why don't you come back or just let us record these songs. It's costing us several hundred dollars an hour to, to have a studio time. It's a big album. Let's let, let us finish the song in 30 minutes. You can search the studio. And, you know, they start doing a song, Richie smooth as silk goes down there. Oh, well, I got to change your mic and gets down there, changes the mic, but also grabs the package, stuffs it in its pants, gets back up there, flushes the thing down the toilet and, and, you know, Waylon's off the hook. That that could have been a prison for everybody if that kilo of coke had been found. And instead, you know, it's just fodder for another hit song. Um, you know, and then and then from there it's pretty much sailing off into the sunset when the you know the last narrative turn is is when Waylon finally cleans up in the late eighties, you know, and, and if you're wired, you're fired is his policy. And they talk about his long suffering wife, Jesse Coulter, you know, pouring the last package of cocaine down the toilet and cry and praise Jesus. Um, which sort of brings us to the whole Jesse Coulter thing. Like the the first song on the second episode is Waymore's Blues, which he's singing on live TV to Jesse. And, you know, they, they actually do two excerpts from that song. And, you know, that's a pretty poignant song. I mean, and and a painful song. I mean, this is a song where you know, they kind of make light of it, but, you know, he's singing about all the other women he's had and how, and, and, and doing it from her perspective. Like he, he understands that what he's doing to his woman by being such a dog, but he's still a dog. And, and, you know, this is, I guess our patented 2019 me too check, but 
what what's your take on that sexual politics from this vantage point? Well, I mean, like you said, it's definitely fraught and especially, you know, I think back then it was way easier for people to just ignore that kind of thing, but, it, but there's no ignoring the, the emotion of watching them sit there while he sings it to her and he even does a little aside. He says, it's poetic license. And she says, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was, you know, uh, it, it was very entertaining to watch, but also definitely a little painful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, like we said that this episode has six songs. It's got Waymore's Blues twice. It's got Honky Tonk Heroes. It's got Jesse Coulter very briefly doing her massive hit. I mean, this was a massive hit. I'm not Lisa that she wrote herself. Um, and then uh, Waymore's Blues again, then Good Hearted Woman in Love with a Good Time and Man, which is, you know, basically Waylon's statement on their dynamic. You know, I mean, it, he was not oblivious to this and, and uh, channeled it into his art. Uh, then the, the massive hit, Luchenbach, Texas. And then uh, Don't You Think This Outlaw Bit Done Got Out of Hand, which is the response to the drug bust. And then they end with uh, I've Always Been Crazy. And, um, you know, thoughts on the song selection? Yeah, I enjoyed all of them. Like, uh, good-hearted woman in love with a good time and man is is for me kind of the quintessential Waylon song in a lot of ways. Uh, just the way it grooves and and the way he sings and the fact that you know he co-wrote it with Willie and it's it's just you know I'm really glad that they managed to get that in there. And the other thing that was a little bit surprising to me is uh, you know Luke and Bach Texas may be the most overplayed song in the Texas Hill country. Like I've heard that song 1 million times more than I need to hear it, but hearing it in the, in the context of this episode, you're like, damn, it's a really great melody. It's a really great song. Uh, and I, I enjoyed it for the first time in a while hearing it, which was really like nice. Yeah. I, I thought it was pretty tasteful. And, and with Waylon, you're going to have to deal with, because some of his stuff was so big, you know, you're going to have to deal with, with at least one of the really overexposed numbers. And I think that they picked the first one that was a massive pop hit and put it into a context where it made sense because they've got uh, the rhythm guitarist, I think is the one telling, was it Billy Ray Reynolds telling the story um, about how, you know, everybody was excited about the song and, and, they play it for the first time ever. The record hasn't been released. And by the time they get to the second chorus, the entire audience is singing it all along. And 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 they're like, damn, this is going to be big. I actually think it was Jigger and Crank that were telling that story. Um, yep. and, and it lets you kind of vicariously experience the thrill of being involved in a project that's that successful and, and knowing that you've got something that is holy shit we have a hit on our hands you know and and uh and that's and that's a fun thing and and then you know Absolutely. i think and like don't you think this outlaw bit done get out of hand i mean that's a totally underplayed and underheard song even though it was a hit in the 70s it was not like it was a country hit it wasn't a big pop hit but it's the perfect answer to the to the drug bust thing and, and absolutely uh, you know and i've always been crazy i think was a, a real nice capstone especially in the context and i'm gonna i'm gonna scoop scoop you and claim that the favorite part of the episode i mean i found myself getting kind of misty-eyed at the end of both episodes but the one when they've got his background singer and, and keyboard player talking about 
how much they loved him and miss him. And, and, you know, that's the secret that Wayland surrounded himself with people who loved that he loved and who loved him. And that really is kind of the secret to human power in a way, especially for a musician. I mean, and, and it, and it, uh, I just found it really poignant and powerful. What, what was your favorite part of the episodes? Yeah, that was really a beautiful part. And, and it was beautiful because of, as you mentioned before, how sort of, unfortunately rare it is in these stories that, you know, this person surrounded themselves with an extended family that actually allowed them to do this whole life in a way that didn't destroy everyone. I mean, it's beautiful. But my actual favorite part is the story about him coming to Austin with Willie and Willie saying, I've found our audience and explaining sort of the whole, you know, cosmic cowboy audience that existed in Austin and, and Waylon being really freaked out with seeing the hippies out there and being like, what's going on here? Where am I at? And I just, I just love that. Cause it's like such a moment in time. Yeah. The half fast hippies and half ass cowboys. And, you know, and when Waylon realizes they're getting over and that this is a massive crowd, he's like, give me that little red haired son of a bitch, you know, uh, it, it is, um, Absolutely classic. Um, and what was your nominee for the funniest part of these two episodes? There were a lot of pretty good ones. My, I think my favorite line was probably from the tour manager in early in episode one when he talks about it was during that sort of border crossing episode. And he talks about the madness of them being out on the road. And he's like, we're driving around with a big old sign on our head that says, look at us. We're stupid. <laughs> absolutely we're stoned 24 7 how do you think we do 300 dates a year yeah that was that was definitely uh probably the laugh out loudest funniest part and and it and it, to me it, it it serves to connect the episodes thematically with like the johnny paycheck and george jones episodes and the just kind of spirit of over the top wackiness and excess uh you know that's just part and parcel of the music biz the my other little funniest part was a little more subtle, but when they uh, Shooter Jennings is talking about the Hell's Angel, that was kind of his bodyguard slash babysitter who had taken to play putt putt. Um, but the guy had solid gold teeth, and they were so heavy that they would fall out, <laughs> and he couldn't talk with them. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's a, I think, a really cool way to humanize um, some pretty scary and bad people. Yeah, um, absolutely. You, you know, but in this context, um, you know, and there's no Waylon Jennings Altamont. I mean, as far as I know, uh, the you know violence and mayhem that went everywhere with the Hells Angels was relatively contained around Waylon, and there's not any tragic, as far as I know, and, and hope not to know if there was. Um, and then what was the saddest part to you? Yeah, well, let me just real quick, I want to, before we move on from Funniest, Mike Judge again slips in one of his drop dead lines uh, at the beginning of the second episode when he's talking about Waylon and what a singular guy he was. And he says, he loved kids and old folks and cocaine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> lots and lots of cocaine. <laughs> Real good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And also the contrast of, you know, his list of, of pals. This is a guy who's best friends with Willie Nelson, Muhammad Ali, the hell's angels, the guy who played big bird. <laughs> You know? <laughs> and, Amazing. Uh, yeah, and also the, there's a real funny part when uh, two of his studio hands from Hillbilly Central 
um, are talking about. Uh, uh, it's uh, Ron Halfkind and Kyle Laring are, are talking about Waylon, and and I think it's Ron that's talking about how smart Waylon was and how Sil- Sil- Silverstein had told him, you know, Waylon's not educated, but man, this is a guy, you know, with some depth that you can talk about anything with. And and Ron's like, you know, I, I I'm pretty sure he was self-taught. I mean, he, he seemed like somebody was really well read, and then the other guy's like. I don't recall seeing a lot of books around the studio. <laughs> seeing a lot of drugs and guns and knives, but not a lot of books. So that I think was that books was, are like walking; they're bad for your image. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, what was the saddest part? For me, it was when he told his friend Buddy Holly that he hoped his plane crashed. Yeah, yeah. There's really no way to get around that. I mean, um, and and you know. Having grown up, I think probably I was forced to hear the day the music died against my will for my entire infancy. And uh, I have sort of come to terms with that. A lot of people hate that song. I don't hate that song. But I've always been fascinated with, you know, what could Buddy Holly have done had he lived? I mean, the guy was only 22 years old and had already done so much. And Richie Valens was only 17. And yeah. I, I think that sort of the redemption of that story is Waylon's accomplishment. And like you said, you know, Waylon could have been a rock and roll legend forever if he had just gone on to drive a truck. But the fact that he carried on and created such a body of work and reached so many people with his music, that's the answer. You know, what could Buddy Holly and Richie Valens have done? Well, Waylon, Waylon carried the torch for him, you know, and carried it a long way. And, and, and that that's, but I think you're absolutely right that that's that's the tragedy in this tale that you know Wayland's tale is, is not tragic, but you know Buddy's definitely is, and 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 there's poignancy. And so, do we like the main character? I mean, what's not to like? I mean, you want to like him, and then you just keep getting more reasons to be on board. Uh, it, he's just a magnificent character. Yeah, absolutely, and and. You know, I think I think the only person Wayland suffers in comparison to might be Willie Nelson himself, and and that's just one of those situations where, you know, Wayland's the Stones, or you know, and Willie's the Beatles. I mean, there's just a, a level of fame that Willie reached, and a sort of Buddha-esque quality that Willie had that that Wayland didn't. But at the same time, Wayland's that classic leading man, the big six-footer, the deep voice, baritone uh, cowboy that that. Well, he just could never be. So, yep. you know, I mean, yeah, just a Texas legend. And, and you know, I can't, if you don't like Waylon Jennings, I can't help you. I'm sorry. And Absolutely. I'm sorry you're missing out. <laughs> you know? And I, I think you hit the nail on the head and basically saying that, you know, what Waylon went on and did, like Buddy Holly would have been proud. You know, if Buddy Holly had lived and done, done half that good, he would have been sad. You know, that would have been a great thing. Yep. No doubt. No doubt. And, and that's, you know, that's what it's all about, you know, it's, it's human beings and human culture. So what's our recommended listening for Wayland fans who want to go a little deeper? Well, I wanted to pick out some sort of, uh, you know, there's that classic period, that seventies period where you just can't go wrong. And it's like outlaw country at its peak. And, but I wanted to sort of highlight a few you know, Waylon recorded a lot of stuff, and so there's some cool stuff to find in there. From 1966, I really like the record Waylon Sings Old Harlan, where, you know, he sang a lot of Harlan Howard songs early on, and it kind of had a big influence on 
what he was doing, and here's a whole record of those songs, and it's really just good country music. And then sort of as he transitions from more of the straight country sound, he makes a record with Lee Hazelwood, and it's as cool and weird as you would think. The singing is great. There's cool songs on there. The production is is real quirky and awesome. Uh, Singer of Sad Songs from 1970. I really enjoy that one. And then he starts to sort of, you can start to hear that classic 70s Waylon sound start to happen on the album Good Hearted Woman from 1972. Uh, and then you're off to the races, you know. And also I wanted to bring up a bonus deep cut from uh, Old Waylon, which isn't a record I would, I would say you should go out and buy. But in today's modern world, you can go listen to this one song where he records Rodney Crowell's Till I Get In Control Again which has been recorded by everybody and it's a beautiful song. And I think Waylon's reading of it is probably my favorite. And so I would suggest that everybody go and listen to his version of that song on old Waylon in 77. Yeah, those are great picks. I'm really glad uh, that Harlan Howard album, I think it's absolutely the best of his Nashville phase. And I love Lee Hazelwood. I've been really enjoying discovering his of and, and uh, that, that album uh, I dug it up and listened to it um, after you, this afternoon after you put it on the list, and that is a great album. But I, you know, I think we also have to go with the classic run of outlaw country albums, starting with Lonesome Honoree and Mean, which preceded Honky Tonk Heroes just by a few months, and then Honky Tonk Heroes. This time, where he basically covers the entirety of Willie's Phases and Stages album right after Phases and Stages came out. I mean, I think he did four songs off that album, uh, and it's just to me, it's like going to the Picasso Museum in Barcelona when when Bar uh, Picasso does like 50 paintings based on Velasquez's great masterpiece. And it's just this two giants wrangling with each other, like Waylon taking on Willie on his home turf at his peak. Uh, then you got the Rambling Man, uh, Dreaming My Dreams, which was always my favorite. That's the one that's got uh, Bob Wills is still the king on it. And are uh, you sure Hank done it this way? And then Are You Ready for the Country, which is the one where uh, I think he'd done Midnight Cowboy before that, but Are You Ready for the Country? He does a number of rock covers, and that's the classic period. If you're going to dive into Waylon, you know, get those albums on your rotation and, and just live it, love it, be an outlaw for a while. Absolutely. So, Everyone should start with those records. They just mentioned that's the Stone classic stuff, and then all those other recommendations are when you're ready for to try some some more stuff. Yeah, and and I got to throw one. I've been obsessed and fascinated with Waylon's version of MacArthur Park forever, ever since I realized he had done it and it had been a hit, and that he went back and recorded it again at the peak of his powers because he he felt that it hadn't been done right the first time. Which is just it's one of those songs that I've always sort of thought was horrible, but have come to appreciate in a perverse way. And so, hearing Waylon do it, it's absolutely the worst fit for Waylon Jennings the last song you think Waylon should be doing but uh he did it and it was a country hit so you know grapple with that sometime if you're feeling like listening to something a little <laughs> weird um so where, where do you put this series these two episodes in the overall series arc well I think you basically mentioned earlier that you thought it was the peak of the first season and I agree with that 100 this is like this is the high point of it uh I mean, I've been enjoying every minute of the of the season right up to these episodes, and then these two are just like complete home runs. 
Uh, and it's partially because of the stories are great. The, uh, and it, it's almost like they don't need to do as much. There's fewer of, of the really great visual gags and, and more just like the whole story is just so compelling. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a tale of triumph basically that, that it's, it's fun to come along for the ride with Waylon and, and, you know, pretend like you're part of the gang, which I think was always part of the appeal of Waylon and Willie, you know, and, and, and the whole outlaw posse and people are, you know, everybody's trying to attach themselves from Tom Paul Glazer to David Allen Coe, uh, Billy Joe Shaver. Everybody was, was trying to get in on that Waylon and Willie magic. And, you know, this is the heart of the sun right here. And so, just got one more episode from this season, so we'll be back uh, with that next week when we uh, they talk about Blaze Foley, who is somebody you would not think would be in such rarefied company. And so we'll discuss as to whether or not Mike Judge makes the case for putting Blaze Foley up there with George Jones and Waylon Jennings and the other greats. So thanks, Justin, for joining us, and thanks for listening to Let It Absolutely. Roll. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure as always. All right. We'll see you next time. share and subscribe to the let it roll podcast on itunes soundcloud or podomatic and check out our website at let it roll you can also follow us on twitter at let it roll cast come back next monday when dan charnas returns to talk ice tea time warner and the cop killer controversy and come back next thursday as nate and justin will be back to talk more tales from the tour bus featuring blaze foley Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax.